Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. But uh, tonight we're here for Mary Glasner. Um, when uh, uh, we were talking about the culture of fear, why Americans are afraid of the wrong things, I thought, boy, don't we need that book right now? Don't we need to be discussing that book right now? So um, we're very happy that uh, uh, Barry uh, uh, is back in Los Angeles. He did a slight stint in Portland, but um, now he's back. And um, uh, what I think is, is most interesting about this book and about what we're going to be talking about tonight is um, particularly after the elections and actually for the last uh, couple of years, there has been this culture um, of fear on, on very, very different and, and varied levels. And so we have the opportunity to discuss this with an expert. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Barry Glasner. Thank you, and thank you for coming, and thank you to the people who are listening on the podcasts and um, all over the world. Uh, what I'm going to do is uh, read uh, for maybe, he said 15 minutes, so 15 minutes. Uh, and what I'd like to do is read some from uh, the introduction uh, to this new edition and then a couple of other bits as well. So as you probably know, this is, as it says on the cover, updated for the Trump era. Uh, and I very much enjoyed updating it. It took a lot of work, but um, it was great to do. And I'm going to read primarily from uh, the parts that are from only this new edition. So let me start with the beginning of the introduction. Since the first publication of The Culture of Fear, the term Culture of Fear has become part of our national lexicon, referenced regularly in academia, in mainstream news outlets, and social media. Scholarly journals publish papers with titles like The Culture of Fear and the Politics of Education, while popular magazines like Newsweek print essays about, quote, the play dating game, our culture of fear, means that we can no longer count on spontaneity to bring children together. Following a string of resignations in the Trump administration last year, CNN ran stories about, quote, a culture of fear inside the White House. Events such as the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, the subsequent war on terror, mass shootings, vaccine scares, and the election of Donald Trump have given new relevance to many of the concepts that I introduced in these pages. We saw numerous instances of individuals and organizations using fear to manipulate the population. They succeeded in large part because, as this book explains, after four decades of nightly news full of dubious threats, we are fertile soil fear-mongering. Despite landmark events such as the Great Recession, 
of 2007 through 2009 and Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. The culture of fear that I outlined in this book continues largely as I portrayed it. We still shake our heads over the latest mass shooting while failing to limit access to guns to people who shouldn't have them. We fret over the kidnapping of a single toddler while millions of children live in poverty and attend crumbling schools. Atypical tragedies grab our attention while widespread problems go unaddressed. Politicians, journalists, advocacy groups, and marketers continue to blow dangers out of proportion for votes, ratings, donations, and profits. Fear-mongering for personal, political, and corporate gain continues unabated. Americans remain inordinately fearful of unlikely dangers, but at least in some regards, there have been changes in the culture of fear. Most notably, foreign terrorists and immigrants have replaced domestic boogeymen and boogeywomen as the principal figures in fear-mongering by politicians and in much of the media. However, the very same scare tactics I discuss in the pages that follow, repetition, misdirection, and treating isolated events as trends, have been applied with great success to the newer narratives. So let me talk about next something um, that is from uh, the earlier edition uh, that, to my mind, is one of the great instances of what I'm talking about throughout the whole book. It is also what gave rise to the book initially. Uh, the book came about initially because I was noticing that there, was all these, there were all these stories about pregnant teenage girls and how uh, they were causing all sorts of problems, as you'll see in this. I'll just read a little bit of this. Um, and also, I want, I want to read this part because um, I'm often asked or accused um, of uh, focusing only on uh, fear mongers from one side of the political spectrum, which is weird because if you read the book, you'll see it's not true at all, but that's a perception. <coughs> all right. Let me start at this point. Legislators included in the 1996 federal welfare law $250 million for states to use to persuade young people to practice premarital abstinence. In what may well qualify as the most sweeping, bipartisan, multimedia, multidisciplinary scapegoating operation of the 20th century, at various times over that decade, the decade um, roughly from the mid-80s to the mid-90s. <clears throat> Prominent liberals, including Jesse Jackson, Jocelyn Elders, and Daniel Patrick Moynihan, and prominent conservatives such as Dan Quayle and Bill Bennett, all accused teen moms of destroying civilization. <laughs> Journalists joining the chorus referred to adolescent motherhood as a, quote, cancer. They warned that pregnant teens breed criminals faster than society can jail them, that's a quote, and they estimated the cost to taxpayers at $21 billion a year. $21 billion, anyway. 
Uh, members of my own profession, social scientists, have alarming things to say as well. And this is a quote. The lower education levels of mothers who began childbearing as teenagers translates into lower workforce productivity and diminished wages, resulting in a weaker, less competitive economy. That's from a prominent scholar of the time in an educational research journal. Translation, you can thank teen moms for America's declining position in the world economy. These claims are absurd on their face. An agglomeration of impoverished young women whose collective wealth and influence would not add up to that of a single Fortune 100 company simply did not have the capacity to destroy America. What these pundits did was to reverse the causal order. Teen pregnancy was largely a response to the nation's educational and economic decline of the period, not the other way around. Girls who attend rotten schools and face rotten job prospects have little incentives to delay sex or practice contraception. In 1994, at least 80% of teen moms were already poor before they became pregnant. So let me go now to the end of the book, after which I'll, I'll read parts of this and then stop and uh, take your questions. I want to read from the end of the last chapter uh, and then the beginning of the new epilogue. In August 2007, several months before even the Democratic primaries began, the would-be president's wife, Michelle Obama, spoke to supporters in rural Iowa about why she agreed to let her husband run. Barack and I talked long and hard about this decision. This wasn't an easy decision for us, she explained. And as more people talked to us about it, the question came up again and again, what people were most concerned about. They were afraid. It was fear. Fear again, raising its ugly head in one of the most important decisions that we would make. Fear of everything. Fear that we might lose. Fear that we might get hurt. Fear that this might get ugly. Fear that it would hurt our family. Fear. You know the reason why I said yes? Because I'm tired of being afraid. I'm tired of living in a country where every decision that we have made over the last 10 years wasn't for something, but it was because people told us we had to fear something. And now the epilogue. I'll read the beginning of that. Uh, it's titled The Fearmonger in Chief. <clears throat> for a while, it looked like Barack and Michelle Obama achieved their goal of making the United States less a country based on fear. Throughout his successful campaigns in 2008 and in 2012, and as president, Obama largely avoided fear-mongering. As we saw in the earlier chapters, the same cannot be said of his predecessors, Presidents Bush and Clinton, both of whom subscribed to Richard Nixon's precept, people react to fear, not love. That's a quote from Nixon. Obama's successor has returned to that approach. Even as crime rates in most of the nation were at record lows, 
Donald Trump regularly spoke of crime waves, and he used words like carnage to describe the situation. He depicted America's cities as overrun by, by crime, gangs, and terrorists. And though immigrants are less likely to commit crimes than are other Americans, he spoke of, quote, illegal immigrants roaming free to threaten peaceful citizens. Throughout this book, we've seen that the seeds for panics about terrorists, crime, and people of color were planted and tended on local and, KB, and, local and cable TV news and by politicians and advocacy groups throughout the latter decades of the 20th century. By the time Trump began his presidential campaign, they were fully grown and ripe for picking. Surveys conducted during the summer of 2016 found that nearly two-thirds of Americans worried that they or someone in their family would be a victim of crime. And even though an American is more likely to die from drowning and about 300 times more likely to die from gunfire by someone they know, a majority of Americans worried that they fall victim to terrorism. In many ways, there's been little novelty in Trump's fear-mongering. He deploys exactly the same techniques I've discussed in the book, and he packages them alternately in the sick society narrative that Bill Clinton in invoked about juvenile crime and pregnant teens, or else in the 9-11 can happen again story that George W. Bush used to justify the so-called war on terror. But Trump's fear-mongering has something more, something that brought to the polls the 40% of those who voted for him who said they didn't trust him, and the third of those who voted for him who said he lacked the temperament and qualifications for the job. What distinguishes Trump's fear-mongering is his crossing of previously uncrossed lines. <coughs> Trump tapped directly into deep-seated bigotries. Previous presidential candidates had wooed bigoted voters more cautiously, or they ignored them altogether for fear of alienating more moderate voters. Studies conducted by political scientists and social psychologists during and after the presidential election found that holding negative or racist views about people of color correlated strongly with support for Trump. Some researchers went farther showing voters pictures that were identical except that in one, the person is black and in the other, white. When given the same information about each, Trump supporters responded negatively about the black person. Trump played baldly into those prejudices, something that no presidential candidate had done since Barry Goldwater in 1964, when, as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. put it at that time, the Republican nominee gave aid and comfort to racists by proudly attacking civil rights reform. <clears throat> In the half century since, presidential candidates wooed bigoted whites with codes like welfare queens and promises to get tough on crime. But even the most notorious of these earlier escapades, the Willie Horton ad, which the Trump campaign's approaches sometimes compared, differed considerably from Trumpian tactics. In speeches in the summer of 1988, George H.W. Bush recounted lurid details of Horton's attacks on a suburban couple 
be taken hostage while on furlough from prison for a murder conviction, and Bush slammed his Democratic opponent, Michael Dukakis, for having supported the furlough program. That, however, was a very different approach than Trump's. Trump's appeals to evangelical Christians were equally visceral. Democrats, he said, quote, are selling Christianity down the tubes, waving a Bible and playing to their fears of being scorned and marginalized. Trump pledged to, quote, restore respect for people of faith. His Democratic opponent, he warned, would, quote, put bureaucrats, not parents, in charge of our lives and our children's education. Trump evoked what sociologist Arlie Hochschild refers to as a secular version of the rapture, noting that a majority of white evangelicals, and in fact about 40% of all Americans, believe key tenets of the end of days narrative. Hochschild describes the secular version this way, and I'll read her full quote because I think it captures it. She says, with laws allowing abortion and gay marriage, transgender people using their chosen bathroom, and a rise in the religiously unaffiliated, a former cultural world has come to an end. In light of the shrinking proportion of whites in the American population, their demographic world is approaching an end also. While some endings may be gradual, others are sudden, a factory closes, a company downsizes, a house is foreclosed, a Supreme Court decides. It's noteworthy that Trump peddled scares about each of those that Hochschild mentioned, and he rang evangelicals' bells in other ways as well. Consider how he talked about political correctness, a hobgoblin dating back to the late 1980s that I discussed at length in chapter one. Here's the problem with political correctness. It takes too long. We don't have time. We don't have time, he said several times throughout the presidential campaign. That wording resonated with themes that evangelicals heard in church. It also afforded him a cudgel against anyone who took issue with his disparagement of people his base of supporters hated and feared. Asked in an interview for an example of political correctness gone awry, Trump recounted an exchange with a reporter who admonished him that anchor baby is a derogatory term. His reply, he said, I said, well, what would you call them? The babies of undocumented immigrants, he said. And then he gave me like a seven or eight word definition. I said, we don't have time for that. So on one level, you know, we can laugh at that, but the resonance for key parts of his audience at a deeper level is pretty profound. So why don't I stop at that point um, and discuss whatever you want, any questions any of you have. Yes, sir. I'm looking forward to reading the book. I'm interested in the origins of the phrase, the cultural theory. Okay. The key part of his question was that he's looking forward to reading the book. <laughs> but he also said, uh, what is the origin of the phrase, the culture of fear? As far as I know, my noggin, but um, who knows? I mean, there's, 
It turns out there's another book with the same title um, that came out around the same time, and we don't know each other, and we didn't know, this book's quite different than mine, but we didn't know that we were doing this. So as far as I know, <laughs> you know, um, I mean, it wasn't, from what I can tell, in use before this. Yeah, he's saying, um, I'm repeating these for the podcast, podcast folks. Um, he's asking, is this something new? There seem to be many examples in the past of the culture of fear, of a culture of fear, right? Uh, so that's a long and <laughs> complicated story that there's not time for me to do now. My short answer is this. Um, absolutely, leaders have used fear and others have used fear um, probably throughout history, though we don't know that. There are certainly periods when um, powerful people were using this to their advantage, no question, and they're well documented. Several things are different now, I think. And one, let me say this, one reason I call it the culture of fear is, as far as I know, there has never been this sort of enveloping general um, situation, right? We're using the word culture twice in the same sentence. Um, as far as I know, maybe there have, have been. Uh, there certainly have been very fearful times in the past. So that's one, one distinction. <clears throat> the other, though, is how this operates, which is really what the book's about, how this operates now. The techniques that are used, the technology that's used, and to which and to which ends, uh, and that mostly comes down to uh, what politicians do and how they use fear. And it is not the case, and I, even from what I read tonight, you get a sense of that. It is not the case that all politicians always do this. That's a myth. Um, in fact, quite often. In the, in the history of this country, and very much in some other countries, uh, it's more often, they more often win um, by promising a, a brighter future and don't talk about fearful things very much at all. Um, but now, uh, especially in local elections in the US, it's used almost all the time, and on, about very similar topics, in fact. Uh, Crime is on the rise is the way local politicians have gotten um, elected throughout this country for a long time. Another big difference now, during the period I've, I'm writing about, over the last several decades, is how this works through media. Uh, so, kind of a shorthand I like to give for this is when you have a daily newspaper, or maybe two 
one in the morning and one in the afternoon in some places. Uh, you couldn't have this perpetual fear monger in the media. It just was impossible. But as soon as you have anything resembling what we have now, I mean, starting with cable TV news, or even before that, just with local TV news, and local TV news, the motto is, where it leads, it leads. And that's been true for a long time. Uh, and that's not just something people say when I would interview news directors in local stations. I mean, that's exactly how they operate. With cable TV, it's essentially the way they, they get people to watch and continue watching. And now, online, it's, it's a constant barrage. And with social media, it means that these scares that are blown way out of proportion circulate over and over again. Um, a great example of that uh, that I write about at some length in the book is uh, scares about vaccines. Uh, uh, it's a very serious business. Uh, illness rates go up. People die as a result of those um, fears scares, which took off, um, especially because of, or not because of, but through um, social media and the internet. Yes? How would you say FDR, this is the only thing we have to fear, is fear itself, applies to your take on the health of fear? Um, <laughs> I both agree and disagree with it uh, in the book and more broadly. Um, we certainly, I mean, what, the, the subtitle of this book is Why Americans Are Afraid of the Wrong Things. I don't think that um, we have nothing to worry about. So um, I don't think fear is the only thing we need to fear. Um, but I agree with his sentiment very much. But secondly, um, the last thing I would ever want to suggest is that there's something else to fear. Well, fear, right? Um, I did an interview with a TV show yesterday. Um, I can't talk about where it's going to be because that's the way it works in that business. But anyway, it's with a comedian as a TV show. Um, and he got worked this whole thing back and forth with me where his punchline was going to be, was, um, so you want us to be afraid of fear, right? And I didn't want to kill this punchline, so it was tricky. But <laughs> um, in fact, that's not what I'm saying. Um, I'm right now, I'm just finishing a proposal for a new book, and also about fear, um, in which I'm, because I've had questions like that and so on, I started really reading um, FDR's speeches in which, and and the speech in which this occurs, it's really fascinating. I mean, it's in the context of a lot else that's going on, but that's the next one. Yeah. Uh, well, when, when you're talking about fabricated fear-mongering, mm -hmm. you know, the caravan is coming, mm -hmm. you know, so there's an audience. Yep. And it's meant for this audience. And this audience, obviously, to be able to swallow these fabricated fear means the gullible audience, right? Uh, do, you, do you discuss in your book the type of audiences that 
that are receptive or that mm -hmm. you know that are easy to experience this fear Right. She's saying um, that uh, these are direct, these exaggerated scares are directed at audiences, uh, and are there some sorts of audiences that are more susceptible? Right. That's what I had assumed, but I don't see the evidence for it. Um, they work different. Well, different scares work um, on different audiences. So, as far as I know, there's no systematic study to answer your question, I should say. But from what I can tell, in terms of what works and who it works on, it's not, for example, liberals versus conservative, left versus right, educated versus uneducated. There are too many very strong counterexamples. <clears throat> in terms of educated, for example, I always like to talk about Volvo ads. Right? For a long time. Uh, in fact, they got themselves in a rut by using this too long when it wasn't, they needed to move on and design cars. But they sold their cars with, you know, you'll die in a regular car and this car is safe, right? You don't want to kill your kids. Um, I mentioned vaccine scares. Um, the right has come to this late in the game. That was mostly from the left. And so, you know, I don't, I don't think there's a and audience um, for whom it works better than others. But part of what's, I think, important is that these messages have to be tailored to audiences. So, I mean, I've spent a lot of time now um, trying to figure out how come Donald Trump is so damn good at this. And you heard part of the answer. I go in much greater detail. Um, but part of it is what you were suggesting in your question. He is directing these at very specific audiences that he knows how to get to. Um, they don't work for the rest of the population. Right? But you mentioned uh, the caravan that's coming. You know, I love that, right? Um, by the time most people hear this podcast, right, uh, nobody, most people won't, what was the caravan? Because he used it in, during the campaign, the midterms, uh, and then, poof, nothing to worry about anymore. Although the soldiers are still out there being sent. But um, then, he, you know, he quickly moves on to another sphere, right? Uh, and. So another part of the answer, there are a bunch of parts to the answer, but why he's so effective is he's not. <laughs> he knows his audience and he's effective with them. And that, by the way, in my opinion, is the best hope for the Democrats to get to succeed against them. And if they if they could continue mostly facing their pitch on fear about Donald Trump, it's not going to work very well for very long. Um, if they take the Obama approach, in my opinion, it'll work great. Yep. In the introduction, you mentioned the word misdirection. How is that connected to the sphere being used as a misdirection? 
Yeah, um, a technique, yes. So, um, uh, the person asking this question is a great magician, but so he knows. But for the rest of you, if I want to make a coin disappear from this hand, I gotta get you to look over here while I get rid of the coin, right? That's the shortest possible explanation in this direction, which is really, can be very complicated. Uh, politicians especially, others too, but especially politicians, use misdirection both to achieve the fear-mongering, right? and they use fear-mongering for misdirection. <coughs> so first, they use it to achieve the fear-mongering. Right? Uh, so if actually crime isn't increasing, right? I need to get you to look at a really scary example horrific crime that's occurred to get you thinking, oh, it's horrible. Crime must be awful everywhere. Or to make my claim of that credible as one example. Um, they also use misdirection for this other end. Right? So if um, I'm a, uh, a politician who doesn't want you doesn't want voters to be thinking about something else, right? Like, say, the Russia probe, Russian interference in the election. A good thing for me to do is to get you very focused on something scary that I misdirect your attention to. Yes? I'm kind of interested in fear culturally, and I've been noticing horror is being told in a more intimate way social fears and uh, humor in horror. And um, the whole genre has really gone through a revolution. And I, I also realized that about this time in the 80s, these news shows, I, I have like a peculiar epidemic towards mystery podcasts and, and crime, and I, I'm just really drawn to these weird, and And then I also am thinking of the trope of the teen mom and this developing um, trope of mental health crisis in the white male and, um, and the expression of that. And I'm just wondering how you see things like that shaping culture and, um, and how that's being used in a more psychological way. There's a lot built into that question, but let me unpack a little bit. First, let me say I'm not a psychologist. Um, there's at least one really good one. But, so I, I don't claim to understand that part very well. I've read a lot about it. Um, on the other issues you raised, um, one, one point you made I think is really important in this way. So you were saying you know, that you're transfixed by certain sorts of like these crime podcasts and so forth, right? I mean, part of it is Addiction. that they're made really well, but um, which is not to be underestimated. But, I mean, what I want to say about that, um, if only people would get their scares from horror movies and books and things, right, rather than 
electing people based on them or making purchases based on them, uh, that would be great. Uh, I mean, I, I'm very much not anti-media uh, making you afraid for entertainment purposes. <laughs> um, but for these other ends, I think it's very damaging for the society and as you were suggesting in your question, for individuals also, right? It's, it, I mean, anxiety is the leading psychological disorder most prevalent in the country, last I heard, I think, right? Um, yeah, which, yeah, which I don't think is unrelated to all this, though I can't prove it. I mean, we know for sure that it's rampant, right? Because uh, it seems like these mass shootings have overtaken suicide. No. And that's, um, I debated with myself whether to read this part. Um, so buy the book and read it. Okay. One, one of the things Americans should be afraid of um, is gun violence and the availability of guns to people who shouldn't have them. Uh, and I write a lot about that. Uh, one of the myths always hesitant to correct it because it's useful for getting people committed to gun safety and doing something about the gun crisis. But one of the myths is that the problem really is these mass shootings. No. Mass shootings are awful and they're also could be um, mostly prevented really easily by just restricting certain sorts of assault weapons, but anyway. But that's not, of the roughly 30,000 people who lose their lives uh, from gun violence, uh, the great majority are in suicides, or suicides. Um, and that gets almost no attention. Now, why should that get the attention of people like me, I confess, who want, who see this as a really major issue, de dealing with the gun um, phenomenon and, and how it plays out in this country. Uh, the reason is, it's all the same thing. Uh, a lot of those suicides, it's very hard to estimate exactly what proportion, you know, I mean, I don't mean to be flippant what I'm about to say, but the person is dead, right? Um, but clearly, Having easy access to the gun, I think there's no disputing this, uh, makes it much more likely that the person will succeed in a suicide. And somewhat more likely, certainly, that they'll try. Okay? Um, seriously try. So, if we do something about the gun issue, some of the, the things that there's actually almost no dispute about, virtually the entire population agrees about. It would cut down on suicide, on the use of guns and suicide tremendously. Uh, uh, trigger locks, um, uh, the, uh, the um, storage, proper storage of guns in homes, um, licensing, being able to have guns removed from people who are having um, issues where they shouldn't have the guns. Um, for example, there are there are others that are more expensive, but would save lots and lots of lives. Um, there's technology readily available for um, uh, 
connecting guns to their owners during registration through fingerprinting and other means. Um, there's just so much that could be done that would affect both the homicides, murders with guns, and the suicides. Uh, and I think, you know, I don't have to say why it's not being done. That's a political issue that's widely discussed. But there's an aspect that's not as much discussed, and that's how the fear-mongering about this issue plays into um, those politicians' approach, right? The most obvious one that people see is they want to take your guns away. Uh, very few people who want to deal with this problem want to take uh, people's guns away. They want them registered. They want them to have training and how to use them and store them and so forth. Um, you know, there's some people, I'm sure, who are arguing to take them all away, but that's not generally the case. And so scares like that are used to keep this going also. Is there another one I saw? Yes, sir. I have a follow-up on the lady's comments. Um, isn't it true that when, when you're going to watch uh, a movie, a scary movie, That one's hard to summarize for people listening to the podcast, but basically, um, I think he's—I think you're saying. Uh, first off, when we go to a scary movie, um, we're going to be scared, right? We know what we paid our ticket for, and that's part—that's what the entertainment and the, and the joy, and the, you know, excitement of it is. Um, and going to a fun ride. Yeah, and okay, that's that's a good shorthand, and he's saying. But going to a Trump rally is the same thing, in a way, right? I know that I'm gonna, he's gonna say that all these horrible people are doing these scary things and all that, right? And you're also saying that it, it plays to something one already believes if one goes. Uh, yes, um, but he didn't win that way. <laughs> um, uh, the fear mongering goes beyond the true believers to bring in new believers, A. But B, another part of what you said, um, or at least I think implicit in what you said, is another key aspect of this, and that is the fact that I have these, you know, beliefs or the, at least the gist of them, right? Um, and then the fear monger brings them out. That's a lot of what I'm writing about. How did they do that? Right? How do they do that? So um, a group of uh, one category of fear mongers I hadn't talked about much 
or at all tonight, um, that's very, very important is advocacy groups who raise money using fear. And that's basically almost, well, certainly in the cases that are coming to mind right now, um, they do exactly what, what we were just saying. So um, I'll take an organization I support as an example, right? I could give you lots from other realms. The ACLU, right? American Civil Liberties Union. Uh, you know what they, you know what their big image is now um, for saying that it's urgent that you send them checks every month? Scary picture of Donald Trump. Right? Why are they doing that? Because that creates urgency for their likely donors. And this is commonly the way, not necessarily with one image, but that's commonly the way it, look, it works. If you look at, at appeals for, um, from advocacy groups and, and um, uh, nonprofits of that sort that engage in issues, um, you'll see this pretty much all the time. Basic, the basic approach is uh, send us money or this thing that you are concerned is going to is, is bad, it's going to get really bad, right? Uh, right, which is, I guess, in a sense, a long way of saying I agree with you, but it's taking that kernel, that's our, if you want, that's already in the listener, the viewer, and then bringing it out in a way that gets the result that the fear monger or the organization's out. We have one more? Yes. Yeah, so he's saying, can first, can, can uh, fear-mongering be combated, can, can we combat it with logic and facts? Um, and you're saying, or is it that there are just some number of people who are going to um, buy any of these fears anyway, right? Uh, so here's how I see those two parts, which I see as kind of separate. Let me take the second one first. Yes, there will be some percentage of people who are going to hold on to their fears and biases no matter what. Um, but what I'm concerned about with, in general and with those people too is what's being, how is that being used? What's, what's coming of that? Right? Um, so I write in the book about child kidnapping. I doubt that there are very many parents who don't fear for their small children. I mean, it's kind of what the oddity is. Right? But then, you know, this harm may come to them. Somebody may do something bad to them. To fear a stranger kidnapping you, you've got to be sold on that. Right? That's what concerns me, is when these very tiny probabilities like that one Extremely unlikely that's going to happen. Uh, 
almost all children who are missing or kidnapped or by somebody they know or they're runaways, almost never by a stranger. Uh, for that to be put to political use and commercial use, as I'm writing here about all the money that, that is made off of that fear also, not just, not just election. And then for there to be legislation, which is typically very expensive and very ineffective to come out of that. See, that's what I'm concerned about. So, sure, some percentage of people will with any of these, regardless of what's done. So let me go back to the first part of your question. But, uh, but just to finish that, sure there are, but what comes of it is what I'm concerned about. Does that number grow through the fear monitoring? Um, what what hap what 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 are those people provoked to do? How, what does it cost everybody else, and so forth? So going back to your first, um, that's the great debate in the, in this field and related fields. Can um, can the facts change the situation? I hope so, because that's what I do for a living and how I spend my life. What's the evidence? It's complicated. Uh, presented the right way, presented effectively, you know, when the communication is effective and done in a smart way, the evidence is clear, it has an effect. But what is the right way under various circumstances is where it gets complicated, okay? Um, Another aspect of this, though, that I was aware of before I did this work, but because of this book and speaking various places, you know, doing interviews, especially on shows where there are call-ins and so forth, I can tell you it's anecdotal, but it's, I have a lot of the, a lot of examples, and so do others who do this work. People, a lot of people, are itching to have the information so they can give up what they're afraid of, okay? I mean, again, an example that maybe will drive this home, Sphere of Flying, about which I have a chapter. Um, and there's very few people who are afraid of flying, there's some, but there are very few who want to keep that, you know? Um, and research evidence is that for most of them, some need therapists and all kinds of these interventions because of where it's coming from. But most of them presented with the probabilities in the right way over time get over. Right? Um, and I think that's the case probably for most all. Um, and so the trick is how to do that. And if you're a politician, it's really hard. <laughs> because fear is going to, you know, if your opponent choosing fear, it's going to be easier for them to get attention and to get votes. But again, I, I really like to emphasize in our current period in American history, there was a president who succeeded without fear monger and won two elections and was black. Okay? I mean, if we ever wanted the proof in the pudding, as they say, we had it. Okay? 
So yes, it's possible. It's done. And by the way, he countered. If you look at what he actually did when all these fears, you know, all these scares were thrown up at him. He did essentially two things. He countered with the facts. And remember, he was said to be pedantic and boring and all that because he did that. I don't know if you remember. Um, and he always countered with what you know. He he always called hope. Um, which is a very powerful way to counter these things. Um, so it absolutely can be done. When the first edition of this book came out, I couldn't show you any really real-world example that lasted very long. Now I can. Um, there are others, right? But that one, I mean, I looked really hard to find this guy engaging in German <laughs> during his nine years by which I mean, you know, the, the uh, election process. But, uh, it's really hard. Um, I mean, he and Michelle Obama were absolutely committed to not doing it, and wouldn't let, they wouldn't let their administration do it. So um, there you have it, right? Are we good? So he's saying, is fear ever good? And his example is, shouldn't we be afraid? Uh, shouldn't we have been afraid uh, that things could have turned the way they did politically and we have this president? Um, I, my answer may sound too pat or something, but I, I really believe it deeply. And I can go on with it um, and argue for it. Uh, the, being fearful wouldn't help anything. Would make things much worse. Now, being not being aware of potential dangers in general is a very bad thing. Okay, so a, a, an example of that um, is climate change. Right? Uh, to say, um, you know, all this time we don't let's not worry about it. Let's see what happens. It's not a good idea. But being fearful of it would have done nothing. See, it's a big distinction. Um, and I think it's one that's important uh, to keep in mind. Uh, even in areas that, um, uh, you know, that I write and care a lot about, um, like gun safety and, and that sort of thing, to be afraid that, I mean, one of, one of the biggest um, roadblocks is people on the side, our side, who want to do something about this, who, who just throw up their hands and say, but there's so many guns. There's no, no. Um, each and every one of those guns can be made um, safer, and each and every one of them can be licensed just like when you drive your car, all those gun owners can get the kind of training necessary for gun safety, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's not the number of them. Um, and I'm just using that example because, you know, I mean, you could say, this is really scary. I mean, we have more guns than people in the country and all that. Um, 
thinking that way, I think it's wrong-headed, but it's also not helpful. Um, so when is it okay or um, good to be fearful? You know, we have this, um, we're born with this fight or flight response that makes us very receptive fear monger. Um, when is it a good thing? It's a good thing for, in all the cases, where we, for which we have it, really. Like, you know, if your two-year-old kid is putting her hand in a cage with a tiger at the zoo, you should react that way. You should be terrified and you should yell and pull the hand out. <laughs> okay? Um, but when someone is trying to sell you some expensive alarm system by essentially tapping exactly the same response to their advertising, no, you shouldn't. And the distinction um, matters. Is that it? Chris? You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.